Hi there, Nasty Pasty listeners. I can't believe you're back already. Yes, it's me, Andy Roberts, your weekly dose of irritation and wonder who seemingly gets off on violence, blood and offal. I promise I am indeed very sane, but I certainly couldn't say the same for the movies that I cover on this show. As the name might suggest, or if you're a regular, this show is intrinsically linked to the phenomenon of the video nasties. These are a British colloquialism, a term coined by the more conservative voices from the 80s in relation to cheap exploitation films released on VHS back in the crucible of the pre-cert era, where there was no formal certification or censorship. This was separate from the UK cinemas, which were quite strictly regulated, but this period of freedom was only short-lived, as moral busybodies and the Director of Public Prosecutions spoke up to spoil our fun. Using the police forces and greedy politicians as tools in their savage quest, a set number of films were listed as obscene and systematically seized from dealers and distributors, hauled before the courts and prosecuted, rendering the shop owners and businessmen legally culpable for distributing obscene material. Lots of people were hurt financially and personally, and by today, where it seems like it never happened, MPs simply shrug it off. To ensure this era is never forgotten, the Nasty Pasty podcast shuffles through the non-nasty films that would have shared the shelves, and I ponder about why other examples weren't chosen to be poster boys for obscenity. We're now on our 59th episode, which will be covering something a little south of pure horror. We're tackling the anarchic world of vigilante films, featuring law-breaking, criminal-busting anti-heroes who flout the rules but win our affections. Well, sometimes anyway. Vigilante films, of course, rose to prominence with films like Dirty Harry, Taxi Driver and Death Wish, while towards the 80s you had more examples like First Blood and Death Wish 2. Usually, these films feature a previous trauma that acts as a catalyst for the violent reaction, quite often the participation in a war like Vietnam. But today's examples are 1980's The Exterminator and 1984's The Executioner, or original title, The Executioner Part 2. Yeah, more on that later, but for now, let's hit it off with James Glickenhouse's The Exterminator. Amidst a hellhole of explosions, flames and helicopter mayhem, a small group of American soldiers are captured by Vietnamese fighters and tied up to be interrogated. 
When the soldiers decide to keep silent, the Vietnamese leader decapitates one of them to force them to spill secrets. One of them, called John, obliges the information, while another, Michael, manages to slip three and slit the throat of one of the captors with a piece of wire, gunning down the Vietnamese, holding them captive. Soon after the ordeal, an American helicopter is able to get to ground and rescues a couple of them, including John and Michael. Many years later, in New York City, John and Michael work together at a warehouse. When one day they encounter a gang stealing crates of beer from the workplace. John is held at knife point, but is rescued by Michael, who beats the thugs up. Later that day, just as Michael sees his kids, the gang return and exact revenge on him, beating him severely and tearing into his spine with a metal claw. He is hospitalized, presumed to be paralyzed. Soon after, John kidnaps one of the gang members called Frankie and interrogates him using a flamethrower, who spills the location of one of their hideouts. Armed with an assault rifle, John breaks into the party, holding them at gunpoint, gunning one of them down and knocking the leader Marty and his sidekick out cold. Becoming plagued by visions of Vietnam, John decides to leave them in their basement alive, but filled with rats. The police arrive soon after, indicating to a detective Dalton that someone has killed members of the Ghetto Ghouls, revealing that one of the men was still alive downstairs, though most of his face has been devoured by rats. Dalton then goes to a local bar for some leads and ends up being recommended a hooker who was present at the hideout who might know something about it. Arresting her, Dalton extracts the perpetrator's description by humiliating her for her drug habit and occupation. While John admits to the injured Michael that he took care of the gang for him, a local mob boss called Pontavini, who's involved in a protection racket with John's warehouse, is drugged and kidnapped by John while at a bathroom in a restaurant. Strung up in chains above a meat grinder, Pontavini is interrogated by John for the location of his home, so that he can steal the protection money back to give to Michael's now struggling family. Gaining access to the house, John is suddenly attacked by Pontavini's attack dog, which savages him badly before he kills it with an electric knife. Returning, John lowers Pontavini into the meat grinder for not warning him about the dog and maims him horrifically with it. Visiting the hospitalized gangster, Dalton visits and invites the attending doctor Megan on a picnic date. While in the grungy streets, a hooker is lured into a secret club where the owner specializes in young boys for a pedophile senator who wishes to have a woman penetrate him at the same time. Wanting to leave immediately, the hooker is then forced to stay and is stripped before being assaulted with a soldering iron. The nightly news reveals that a letter was left behind at Pontavini's body, signed by the exterminator, who has vowed to clean the streets up. John, meanwhile, pays for a room with the same hooker, only to notice the burn scars on her body. Explaining about the so-called chicken place, John vows to get them back for her and fashions mercury-tipped expanding bullets to improve his arsenal. Pretending to be selling young boys, John gains access to the chicken place and douses the owner in gasoline, setting him alight and burning him alive. Spotting the pervert senator in the background, John executes him with his revolver and rescues the young boy who's been abused by the men. Dalton soon receives word that footprints were recovered at the scene, specifically a type of boot made only in Maine. He tells Megan, however, that he suspects a Vietnam veteran, as the hooker identified an M16 as the murder weapon, revealing that he was also a Vietnam vet. Shortly after a gang of the ghetto ghouls, led by Frankie, mug an old lady, John steals a motorcycle and pursues them, shooting Frankie point blank and killing him. After giving chase, John is flung from the bike after a bad landing, causing the remaining two to try and run him over. But he manages to shoot the driver and causes the car to careen from a bridge, blowing it up. A CIA agent called Shaw arrives at the crime scene, telling Dalton that he believes the exterminator is a political tool designed to cause dissent in society and disbelief in politics. Dismissing this, Dalton goes to see Megan at the hospital for some nookie, while John visits Michael, who has become so despondent at being immobile that he wishes for John to euthanize him. He does so, and as he leaves, Megan rushes to the room and finds Michael dead, telling Dalton of the news. As Dalton sees John leaving on an elevator, he pulls two and two together and believes it to be the exterminator. Going to see Michael's wife, John informs her of his death, while Dalton puts in a few calls and confirms that John was in Vietnam with Michael as his war buddy. Leading a sting operation to arrest John, Dalton only finds an empty apartment filled with John's things, but then receives a call from John asking him to meet up. 
In the middle of the night, Dalton reaches John, who, after a small display involving flares and gunfire, surrenders his gun to show that he, too, is a victim. Dalton takes the gun, understanding John's behaviour, but suddenly a gunshot rings out and Dalton is shot, with John trying in vain to rescue him. Realising that the CIA have tracked them down, Dalton implores John to escape, but he too is shot while trying to climb over a fence and falls to his supposed death in the waters below. Dalton is eventually killed by more gunfire after trying to shoot back, while Shaw congratulates his gunman on his accuracy. As dawn approaches, John is shown floating in the Hudson, alive due to wearing a bulletproof vest, which he tosses away as he reaches the shore. After his rather ambitious adaptation of the novel The Astrologer, James Glickenhaus settled for something a little more coherent, more meaningful and more exciting. Taking its cue from the darker, subtle insanity of Taxi Driver by Martin Scorsese, Glickenhaus's example decides to go a bit more for the jugular and emphasises the brutality and violence inflicted on one man and the subsequent violence that he inflicts on the society he returns to. The film starts off incredibly strong, kicking off with impressive action and mayhem, conveying a real sense of hellfire and damnation. Soldiers are gunned down, set on fire, and one is brutally decapitated with a machete. No sooner are we introduced briefly to a few American soldiers, than we are thrust straight away into a grimy, gritty city environment, where our characters John and Michael are now forced into mundane labour to make their living, still bearing the scars of war's past. Of course, this doesn't exactly pan out very well, and what ensues is a catalogue of nastiness and vengeance, though not exactly justice. The main gist that The Exterminator shows us is that after war, the veterans are simply abandoned in an almost comparably vicious and pointless maelstrom of violence and suffering. Instead of fighting for your country, you're fighting for yourself, and while the situation may be different, a higher power is still profiting from your misfortune. John and Michael try to navigate the corrupt New York City the only way that they know how, by working an honest job and trying to put the horror of the Vietnam War behind them. Their way of life, though, is interrupted almost right away by the senseless act of a gang stealing from their place of work. This one event throws the entirety of their well-deserved rest forever out of sync, ending with Michael being callously crippled for life when the gangs seek revenge for their thieving job being cut short. John can't take Michael's injury lightly understandably so, and reacts by swearing vengeance on the thugs responsible. While it does begin in earnest, John's habit of vigilantism soon becomes severely blurred as to what he's actually doing it for, as he seems to be just as lost in his thirst for retribution as Michael is lost in his now disabled life. But who can blame him? The city around him is both simultaneously seductive and flashy, but intensely rotten and corrupt at the core. The scenes of 42nd Street are both incredibly beautiful, showing us the neon phantasmagoria of peep shows, cinemas and street citizens, and alas, incredibly dangerous, showcased by the horrendously dubbed chicken places, grotty hotels and gang hideouts. It's very similar to something like the New York Ripper or something like Joseph Zito's Maniac. 
In this film, though, New York is shown as a microcosm of everything that ensnares you and ultimately leads to your demise, supplying you with needs like sex, liquor and a place to stay, but it only offers the cheapest and most meagre scraps, preying on the vulnerabilities of the poor economy. The hotels we mentioned before are a perfect example. The policy on charging extra for clean sheets, deposits for the hour, is representative of the major capitalist nature of profiting from the city people's suffering. The hookers are pretty much forced to add this to their fee for a john, making their already desperate situation even harder. Not only that, but anyone who actually remains afloat is scathing of you constantly. No more is this true in the scene of the prostitute being interrogated by Dalton, which was actually quite affecting. All of her problems and issues are mercilessly revealed by her bag being searched without her permission. It all becomes too much for her, as she becomes increasingly upset, stammering, fidgeting, and finally breaking down in tears as her needle marks are forcibly revealed by Dalton tearing her shirt. All of this is said without a word. The cop's expression is all that is needed to make it clear to this woman that she's scum, living like some kind of animal trying to survive in this hellhole. Even John is charmed by the streets sometimes, such as taking the hooker up on our offer. But like this scene shows, he's always brought back to his personal vendetta by an injustice that he sees. Not only is John helpless to punish those who hurt the people he knows, but his rage is also directed at the system and the city itself. By the end of the film, we come to realise that though John struggles to make a difference, he's ultimately a slave as well to the never-ending torrent of injustice and is deposited exactly where the city wants. It's almost poetic that he survives his attempted assassination at the film's conclusion by being washed ashore by the current of the Hudson. It's hard not to feel a connection with John. You're there with him at the beginning of the film, seeing the conditions he was in during the Vietnam conflict. Seeing a companion decapitated alone would be enough to break most people, but the sheer injustice of what happens to Michael really gives us good license to cheer John on as he commits his crimes. Not only that, but he also takes no real pleasure in what he does. In fact, John's expression throughout is quite neutral and aimless, almost as though he's fighting a war in his head, driven by nothing personal, and simply wandering around on autopilot, dispensing revenge almost automatically without thought. It's for this reason that I think John is a very effective anti-hero. He's exceptionally ordinary for the most part, he's not particularly macho or gleeful in his actions, but he's not completely milk-blooded or meek either. He is, in short, the perfect vehicle for this film, as he's the everyman that most romantic works of fiction would typify as a hero who brings change. In his own words, I found the guys that did this to you and have taken care of it. It's strange. It was like we were back in Nam. It didn't matter if it was right or wrong, I just did it. Even his surname, Eastland, hints that his time in Vietnam now defines his identity forever. It's also gloriously satisfying to see him inflict pain on the more reviled characters in the film. And there's even some hints of the Arnold Schwarzenegger character from The Terminator here, as he uses the signature line, If you're lying, I'll be back, and even liberates a motorcycle from a biker. Make of that what, what you will. The scene involving modified bullets is rather interesting too, as they're specifically prohibited during wars, but they're legal in other applications. This is probably a statement on the society of America actually being more dangerous for its citizens than it is for an actual combat zone. We're only shown Michael for a few scenes before he's permanently relegated to a hospital bed, but he's clearly the more tough, physically stronger and more masculine heroic figure, especially as the opening stalemate is broken by him taking a risk and cutting down the opposition. He's also the more aggressive one fighting off the thugs when they're stealing the beer, and arguably, if he wasn't present, I don't think that John would have been able to do much. It's unfortunate for Michael, but it's precisely Michael's downfall that empowers John to become the exterminator. It's a pretty nasty scene too, where he's overrun, and then has his spine gouged into with an iron claw. He's then relegated to blinks and eye movements for the rest of the film, but like the Eric character from Kickboxer, his incapacitation drives the rest of the movie, so he's no less essential. Dalton is a rather interesting figure as he's seemingly the foil of the exterminator, but is much like him in many ways. He goes about his job in the most earnest way possible, but he's not afraid to improvise or be daring when he has to be. Like John, Dalton is a Vietnam vet who also wishes to clean up the streets of the city, but unlike John, he undertakes it under the umbrella of the law. 
This seems to have immunised the effect that the city has on him, able to enjoy picnics with his lady friend, or pop to the hospital for a quick snuggle without much consequence. In the aforementioned scene involving the hooker, his look may be one of pity towards the wretched state that she's got into, though to her he's a judgmental cog in the metropolis's vast machine. Simply because he's on the side of the law, he's almost automatically inferior to the direct tactics of John, more akin to a part of the city's problem than an actual solution. The only time that he's actually able to make a difference is when he ignores his usual protocol to meet with John and understand why he's done it. This action, certainly not taken within normal procedures, leads to John's life being saved and the exposure of the CIA as tools of the politicians. In fact, the CIA angle does suggest that most officials prefer to politicise acts of violence and dub them as partisan attacks or political acts of terrorism. In this case, I wouldn't call John's actions explicitly political, but alas, the CIA refuse to believe otherwise and end up killing Dalton and attempting to kill John as a result. It's also hard not to like a guy who has a line that says, I think you have to take a shit, but it's coming out of your mouth instead of your asshole. Megan is surprisingly not a very well-drawn character. Considering that she has a sizable chunk of the screen time, her talents are seemingly wasted as she ultimately functions as either a squeeze for Dalton to play with or a sounding board for his ideas. It was a bit disappointing considering that actress Samantha Egar has buckets of talent that could have been exploited more richly. Other characters like Pontavini are villainous to the point of absurdity. Even when he's chained above a mincing machine, he seems more perturbed that his shoes are getting dirty, that he's about to be horrifically shredded into jibs of meat. Frankie, too, doesn't even learn his lesson after being interrogated with a flamethrower and continues to mug old ladies for fun. I mean, are these criminals so confident that they'll be okay that they just don't fear any consequences? But again, maybe this is saying something about New York, though. With really interesting characters and a well-established story, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the film required little else as it works already. You'd be right, but luckily for us, Glickenhouse also peppers the film with some rather brutally showcased violent bits. In the opening Vietnam hell sequence, we're treated to a machete decapitation, which looks a little dated by now, but by heck, they did really well with it using what appears to be an animatronic head that actually gasps and gurgles after the severing of the neck. I had to rewind it just to see it again, as I really wasn't expecting it. Michael then slits the throat of his captor using some thin wire, which wasn't that bloody, but jeez, it looks painful. The effect basically looks like it slit the skin and exposed the fatty raw layer underneath, so despite it not having much of the red stuff, it looked incredibly painful regardless. Some of the more difficult bits of violence are perpetrated towards innocent people, like the spinal tearing of Michael, or the burning of the hooker, and even the mental torture that Dalton inflicts on another lady of the night, all of which are excruciating to watch in their own way. Thankfully, the catalogue of shootings, explosions, impromptu mincings, and immolations more than makes up for the incursions against the protagonists. So for those of us who like a dose of exploitative violence with our enjoyable pseudo-political plot will be kept very happy indeed. Quite honestly, The Exterminator is both a hell of a lot of fun and packed with important subtext and commentary. Despite not being that critically successful at the time, and being an exploitation film, it's readily apparent that it's an important film by today's standards, and you'd be really silly not to seek it out and give it a few watches. Robert Ginty played the tortured John. He'd later turn up again in the sequel, Exterminator 2, as well as 1983's Warrior of the Lost World and 1989's The Bounty Hunter. Christopher George played Detective James Dalton. We've encountered him before when we covered the Spanish slasher pieces and Fulci's zombie film City of the Living Dead. He was in other things, of course, like the video nasty Graduation Day and 1983's Embalmed. Samantha Egar played the role of Dr. Megan, and we'd seen her before, too, in the theatrical slasher film Curtains. She'd cropped up in 1979's The Brood, and also 1980's Demonoid. Steve James, famous for his multiple stints as the sidekick on the American Ninja series, appears as Michael, while the role of the child pimp was played by Tony Benedetto who had frequent bit roles in stuff like Raw Deal, Analyze This, The Hidden 2, and the TV series Cheers. Pontavini was played by Dick Bocelli, who'd made appearances in the video Nasty, Alice Sweet Alice, and 1984's Too Scared to Scream, 
while Patrick Farrelly, who played Agent Shaw, notably starred in the video Nasty the Nesting, as well as the Stephen King adaptation of Thinner in 1996. David Littman, who had a small role here as the pervert senator, cropped up in Frank Henenlotter's Frankenhooker, while Frankie was played by actor Dennis Boatsicaris, most recognisable now for his long-running role on Better Call Saul, but he's been in Law and Order Special Victims Unit and sporadic films through the 80s and 90s, like Batteries Not Included, Crocodile Dundee 2, In Dreams and The Bourne Legacy. The leader from Vietnam was played by George Chung, who's had fleeting appearances in all sorts of things like Rush Hour, the 2004 remake of Starsky and Hutch, and also Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me. Lou David, famous for playing the menacing Cropsy in the video Nasty The Burning, appears as a random guy handing out leaflets on the street. Whilst on a related note, the thug Marty was played by Ned Eisenberg, also from The Burning. And lastly, in an uncredited appearance, Samuel L. Jackson actually appears in the background for practically two seconds. Like, blink and you'll miss him. Director and writer James Glickenhaus grew up in New York City in the district of New Rochelle. After attending multiple schools in New York, he made his debut with 1975's Suicide Cult, which had the distinction of being seized as a video nasty in the UK. He is most probably famous for his work on The Exterminator, but he also did 1982's The Soldier, 1985's The Protector, and 1995's Time Master. The producer, Mark Bunsman, had also worked on 1975's Suicide Cult, as well as the subsequent sequel, Exterminator 2, which he also wrote. The music was done by Joe Renzetti, who worked on the video Nasty, Dead and Buried, as well as Poltergeist 3, Child's Play, Frankenhooker and Basket Case 2 and 3. The cinematography was done by Robert M. Baldwin, whom we were literally only discussing last week on that ultra-boring bloodbath, and we'd seen him as well before anyway on Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Editor Corky O'Hara didn't really do much else except the video Nasty Christmas Evil, but the special effects team had some quite prominent members who deserve a mention. One of these was Thomas R. Berman, who we were talking about the other week on The Beast Within, and quite a while ago on Frogs. Assisting him was Graham Meech Berkston, who worked on Day of the Locust, Burnt Offerings, and Day of the Animals. Then there was Stan Winston, a rather famous example whom we've already covered when we looked at Friday the 13th Part 3 quite a long time ago. He was involved with no less than four video nasties as well, including Massacre Mansion, Friday the 13th Part 2, Dead and Buried, and John Carpenter's The Thing. There was also Vincent Prentice, who worked on Total Recall, Robocop 1, 2 and 3, Piranha, Basic Instinct, and Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. There was also quite a few assistant directors on the project who were worth mentioning. There was Linda Civitello, who worked on 1977's Grand Theft Auto, and 1977's The Incredible Melting Man, while Mark Slater later worked in the same capacity on the 1981 slasher Madman, and he was an associate producer on 1984's Silent Madness. When the film was released in very early 1980, it was treated to a whole slew of negative critical reviews. Roger Ebert expressed an exceptional dislike for the film, branding it a sick example of unbelievable descent into gruesome savagery, while Variety described it as grotesque violence in a series of glum, distasteful scenes. It received a cinematic release midway through 1980 in the UK cinemas, where it suffered cuts totalling 44 seconds. The reaction in the UK was also a revulsion upon its original release, just before the whole video nasty scandal kicked off. In fact, I managed to find a newspaper article from the Daily Express that's dated Saturday, December 20th of 1980 on page 3, which I'll dictate now. The headline reads, Here's Blood in Your Eye. The most horrific film in the new wave of American bloodbath movies is to be shown in Britain. It's called The Exterminator and it's been passed by the censor. Critics were shaken by the film's violence when it was first shown at trade fairs. The showbiz publication, Variety, called it grotesque. Despite this, the movie took $2 million in two weeks in America. A British censor, James Furman, has made cuts in four of its five reels. One scene, which has been deleted, shows a girl being tortured with a soldering iron. Similar movies, such as Dress to Kill, have provoked angry protest by people who fear that violence against women is being glorified. 
In the exterminator, the censor is left relatively unscathed, a blood-freezing sequence where a bound mobster is lowered into a mincing machine. Another scene, which has been reduced, shows a man being beheaded in explicit detail, using an animated dummy. Mr. Furman said, We've had so much violence, particularly non-sexual violence, against women in films this year, but we hope we are now coming to the end of the wave. One gets the feeling that it's the revenge of inadequate men against women who are getting above themselves, and we've had to take a tough line against it. In The Exterminator, we've cut the beheading scene to an establishing shot and reduced sequences in which an old lady is mugged. The film's British distributor, Stanley Long, of Alpha Films said, It beats me why these horror movies are so popular. People go to have a horrific thrill and then sit with their hands covering their eyes. But then, who goes to Madame Tussauds without entering the Chamber of Horrors? They're the same audience. The Exterminator stars Robert Ginty as a crazed Vietnam veteran who goes on an anti-thug campaign. You can imagine how shocked the UK would be when this turned out to be more than a mere glimpse of the sort of exploitation that would soon envelop the nation. Apart from admitting that the film is actually cut to the major scenes of violence, the gist of the article still suggests that the cuts don't go far enough. I still find it funny how they describe the scene of Pontavini getting minced as blood-freezing, when, quite frankly, it all happens off-screen anyway. The fact that they go on to explain that the animated dummy is integral to the decapitation scene also kind of ruins the fun for it. Pretty typical of the newspaper to remove any sense of fun or entertainment of the film as a whole and treat it as though it's a completely serious work. Still, with this reaction to the cut version, you can imagine what would have happened if an uncut version would have got passed, right? Well, that's exactly what happened when Intervision, already under fire for releasing countless video nasties, released the uncut print on VHS in 1981 in two separate releases. Presumably due to the bad press it received just before the moral panic ensued, the Intervision tape was indeed seized by multiple police forces during the nasties scare, but no prosecutions were brought forward, presumably because they subsequently found that it wasn't on the Video Nasties list. It's also possible that the seizure was also compounded by the fact that a film called The Executioner was on the lists, and they just got the name confused. There'll be a little bit more information about that film on the next film that we cover, but regardless, the film was eventually withdrawn and re-released after the Video Recordings Act was enacted in 1985. Another release came from Intervision again, though this time it had 2 minutes and 54 seconds of cuts. Eventually, a 1991 VHS version from Brave World was cut by 3 minutes and 38 seconds. Victims of this were the scene of Michael being gouged, the soldering iron torture, the opening decapitation and throat cutting, some shootings and even the entire sequence of John making the explosive rounds, rather oddly. In 2000, the film was released on DVD by Synergy and remarkably was still cut by 22 seconds to the decapitation in the opening and the soldering iron scene. It was finally released on cut in 2004 when all previous cuts were waived, but it is now available in various forms on DVD and Blu-ray. So, that was The Exterminator, so let's move on to the next film, The Executioner. When crime took over the city, he came to clean it up. Muggers, rapists, and thugs, beware. Death wish started. The exterminator continued. The executioner part two will finish it. The executioner part two, he's back. Starring Chris Mitchum and Aldo Ray. Excellent. And introducing Antoine John Matin. He is the judge, he is the jury, he is the executioner. He fought in the hell of Vietnam. Fighting a war in the streets. He wants to bring crime down and see that it is dead and buried. The execution. 
Executioner Part 2. When the police can't stop the terror, the Executioner can. He's a one-man army in a battle for survival. Put it down, Mike. He is a master of hand-to-hand -hand combat, an urban guerrilla in the concrete jungle. ready to make their day night down in the alley upon the rooftops he's watching slime he's waiting and he will blow them away he's coming to a theater near you rated r from 21st century in vietnam american soldiers are pelted by a bombardment from their own side unable to evade the attacks on the vietnamese one such soldier, Mike, tries to save his sergeant, Roger, after he receives fatal injuries and ends up watching helplessly as everyone around him falls down dead in the midst of the war zone. Many years later, at a crime scene in a major city, a reporter named Celia tries to get information about the infamous culprit, supposedly called the Executioner, who has been committing a string of homicides over the last two weeks. The next day, on a rooftop, a gang of thugs attack a woman and torture her by threatening to throw her off the building and then cutting her clothes off. A man, garbed in a balaclava and a leather jacket, arrives and beats the thugs off, punching one of them to death, allowing the woman to escape. A local mob boss, Casalis, discusses the killings, but ultimately dismisses them in favour of getting a woman for the night. Whilst at a mechanic shop, Roger meets with Mike and discusses his daughter's graduation, reminiscing about their time in Nam. Mike realises then that some hoodlums are stealing tyres from outside, and the pair confront the gang, managing to beat them off. After fobbing off a junkie called Laura, local dope dealer Pete Vance is threatened by Casalis to locate him a decent girl, while Celia visits the police, revealed to be headed by Roger, to offer her help cracking the identity of the executioner. Later that day, a gang of thugs overruns a general store and raids the till, beating up the proprietor and torturing the assistant by pouring food and drink on her. The executioner soon shows up and knocks a knife-wielding thug out, killing him by shoving a grenade down his trousers. Shortly afterwards, a thief sneaks into Mike's mechanic shop, noticed by him, giving him a flashback of Vietnam and causing him to attack the guy and torture him by trapping his head in a door forcing the guy to admit that Casalis is his employer. Laura, revealed to be Roger's daughter, later smokes weed with her friend Kitty and discusses getting dope, only for her friend to admit that she works for Vance as a hooker and she promises to get her involved. That night, Celia, Roger and Mike go out for a drink at a club, but later afterwards Mike suffers another strange episode of madness and ends up wandering into a gang's hideout, confronting the hoodlums at gunpoint and beating their leader Dan senseless and killing him by throwing him down some stairs. He then cuts the throat of another gang member who tries to intervene by using a smashed glass bottle. Laura ends up getting dressed for her first John, who dopes her, causing the other two hookers he has planned for the evening to reject the foursome and help her to escape to her friends Kitty and Diana. At the scene of the crime, the police commissioner rages at Roger's failure to stop the exterminator, who then goes to see Diana about what she knows and informs her of Celia, who's then invited to dinner with the police commissioner. He is in cahoots with Casalis to prevent a politician's dealings in crime becoming public, who then orders Celia to be killed. When Roger goes to see Mike, he notices that he has a hand injury, consistent with the broken bottle that they found at the crime scene, causing him to take a fingerprint stealthily, while Celia meets up with Diana and is informed of Casalis. Laura is suddenly kidnapped from her home, witnessed by Kitty, while Roger realises that his friend Mike is the executioner in the police station. Kitty reaches a motel and tries in vain to reach either Roger or Celia, but both have met up and compared notes. Roger confronts Mike about his crimes, and after he initially denies it, Mike then descends into another bout of madness, ending with him popping his pistol into his own mouth, ready to kill himself, causing Roger to leave in frustration. 
After hearing a message from Kitty on her answering machine, Celia contacts Mike to tell him of Laura's kidnap, only for one of Casalis's thugs to overpower her by dosing her with dope. Aware that the executioner is being identified soon, Vance celebrates the victory by bringing Laura down to be deflowered by Casalis. Mike, however, arrives on the scene and mows down some of Casalis's men with the car and runs up the stairs to save Laura, bursting into the room and flinging Casalis's henchman onto a sofa, winding him before head-butting Casalis out. Rescuing the abused Laura, Mike executes the men by lighting a cluster of dynamite in the room with them. Whilst in the basement, Celia manages to sweet-talk her way from her restraints and stabs her captor with a samurai sword, pinning him to the sofa. Ridiculously still trying to attack her, Celia is then saved by Mike and Laura as the dynamite destroys the building. Being screamed at again by the commissioner, Roger promises to bring the executioner to justice and goes seeking Mike in an abandoned theatre. Pursuing him to the roof, Roger confronts Mike, but ultimately refuses to kill him, suggesting that instead he should leave town forever. <laughs> Terrific, <laughs> Oh, I hate these foreign languages. Oh. <laughs> you need one or you won't graduate. And if I don't graduate, I don't get a decent job. And if I don't get a decent job, oh, Laura, shut up. I hear that shit every day at home from my mother. <laughs> Your mother's right. <laughs> Screw her! <laughs> screw college and screw school! <laughs> I know better things to do than college and a, and a stupid job! <laughs> oh, I wish this were Coke. Oh, heavenly Coke! <laughs> Where the hell do you find money to buy Coke? <gasps> find it? I don't find it! I make it! <laughs> <laughs> together okay no no problem listen i won't be home for dinner mike some newswoman and i are going out to dinner do you have something there okay might be late what's going on i love you laura well 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 I love how you think you've seen everything and then you pluck a massively obscure piece of exploitation from somewhere that just blows your mind. In a good way. To begin to explain this completely insane, utterly nonsensical vigilante rip-off, you have to cast your mind back to the early 80s when the previous film we covered, The Exterminator, was doing the rounds and making big money. Vigilante films were becoming ever more popular, and with director James Bryan met with Rene Harmon, they decided to make their own version of the film to make some money. Quite frankly, it's hilariously obvious that they've just liberally borrowed from James Glickenhouse's film, with pretty much the same plotline, very similar sequences, and reminiscent marketing. We've then come to the official title of the film, which is actually The Executioner Part 2. Yeah, about that. It turns out that there is no Executioner Part 1. It's that Brian and Harmon thought that audiences would simply confuse Executioner with Exterminator and watch it thinking that it was a bona fide sequel. Even more confusingly, it was released on UK VHS as plain old The Executioner. But back to that later, firstly, let's just talk about the film. For the most part, The Executioner is a rather flimsy and insipid carbon copy of The Exterminator, it has the requisite opening scene in Vietnam, the scenes of vigilante justice and downtrodden victims of the city, the shootings, the explosions, and the ultimate climax. With one key difference, however. It's simply nowhere near as effective. But apart from being boring and dreck, the film is absolutely bloody hilarious. The opening scene of the woman being attacked on the roof is absolutely ridiculous. 
The old lady who's witnessing the act sounds no more concerned than if it was a couple of boys bouncing a ball against the wall. There's a major emphasis in the film as well on focusing on ripping clothes off in a sport sort of sexy way. Though the eroticism falls a bit flat, and it just looks like there's someone that's got a funny clothes-ripping fetish lurking in the crew members. The film is peppered with overdubbed police voiceovers, which are ridiculously giggle-inducing, such as declaring, the police are after him for breaking the law. I mean, you think? Celia gags into the executioner's story with as much excitement as though it was a celebrity opening a leisure centre. And the overly complicated punch-ups are as ham-fistedly inserted as much as you can imagine. While you'd expect gunfire and explosions, the chief novelty on display in this film is rather paltry displays of pugilism, pockmarking you with constant overdubbed groans, smacks and gasps. There's a few scenes of dialogue which are as half-arsed as they are necessary, just to glue together the scenes of banal nonsense. Another large chunk of the film is devoted to the required girls in peril, first by establishing them as utterly hapless bimbos who seem to only care about drugs or sex. The scene of Laura smoking weed with her friend Kitty is one such scene, but it's one of the funniest scenes that I've ever seen in a film. They casually dismiss any notion of education and employment and just muse about drugs and coke that they can get whilst laughing maniacally. The shoddy dubbing actually helps the character of Kitty, as she truly sounds that she could be genuinely stoned, slurring her words and screeching out a laughter that makes you both giggle and cringe in equal measure. To give the illusion that Mike is struggling with his sanity, we're treated to some more heavy-handed exposition in the form of some rather abstract, perplexing Vietnam flashes, which actually feel a little bit supernatural sometimes because of the editing and the content. Like, for example, a bleeding version of Roger begging him to save him, despite the same scene earlier not playing out that way at all. It has an odd effect, really, something more akin to Jacob's Ladder than a cheesy exploitation knockoff. Having said that, the scene where Roger is able to pinpoint him as the killer descends into a much more ridiculous level, as Mike begins to struggle with his trauma and reenacts what looks like a toddler needing the toilet before very slowly putting the gun in his mouth, imitating babyish gurgles. It really is something to behold, so much so that you do actually sympathise with Roger when he decides to give him a few hours to compose himself. The silliness doesn't end there, however, as the final battle, so to speak, gives us some real cheap thrills that would make Sia quite jealous. Mike does his usual rescue mission that's expected, just as Laura is being tortured by cigarettes, that clearly don't seem to be touching her one moment, but then just a few cuts later, and she's a human ashtray. Not only that, but she seems utterly dead and stone-cold one moment, only to then crawl relatively normally on the floor a few moments later. Celia arguably gets one of the best scenes, however, when she kicks ass, charming her way free of her restraints and stabbing her captor with the samurai sword. And while that's kick-ass in itself, it's the pinnacle of exploitation to have the thug not only survive this, but to then carry on attacking her while dragging the entire sofa along with him, which he's hopelessly pinned to. As much as the film is pretty terribly done in a technical sense, with bad editing, crap sets and bare-bones characters, it certainly falls into the same category as the director's slasher video nasty effort, Don't Go In The Woods. It's so terrible that it's just really awesome to behold. Without any decently padded out plot, the stock characters are really all we have to hang the limp threadbare story onto. But what strange characters we have. Despite Mike actually being the executioner, he oddly feels like a second fiddle role, due to the prominence of Roger's character. Roger is certainly the more stereotypical heroic character, becoming a policeman after his experiences in Nam, and settling down with a family, though his wife is starkly absent. He's certainly capable of holding his own in a fistfight, and he's at least altruistic enough to allow his friend Mike to do what he needs to do, and ultimately lets him go, understanding his reason for killing scumbags. Mike, however, is much more of an enigmatic character, and I'm not entirely sure that that's on purpose. Little is known about our anti-hero, except that at some undisclosed point he decided to become some sort of masked Avenger. The comparison is not exactly irrelevant, since when we're introduced to the Executioner first time, he has an almost evil Batman kind of vibe, speaking in a stereotypically evil Christian Bale sort of way, calling his victims scum and slime. 
Rather bizarrely, he also tends to kill his victims using either his fists, broken glass, or shoving grenades up their trouser legs. And these are apparently his signature moves, according even to the news reporters. This can be explained, though, by the fact that Mike's psychosis seems to be much more damaging and apparent than it was to John in The Exterminator. He's much more mentally unbalanced, being reduced to childlike convulsing and seizing up when he's confronted about what he's done. Celia is the stereotypical April O'Neil-type reporter character who's nosy enough to get involved in the story. You can never really forget her, though, with Renee Harmon's Twin Peaks-esque performance, but it does add a good dose of silliness that someone with that thick of a European accent would never make it as so big in America. She's great, though, really, as she's resourceful enough to escape without the help of a man, and she skewers a bad guy with a katana. You certainly don't want to mess with her. The other guys in the film are much more perfunctory, and they serve their function. Laura is the typical damsel in distress, though she's far from a Mary Sue with an utterly fiendish desire for coke and weed. Casalis suitably hams it up as the next kingpin wannabe, while the small, memorable role of Kitty reminds you of why it's probably not a good idea to spend all of your formative years smoking marijuana. Or a good idea, depending on what your end goal is. Her laughter is certainly both repellent and infectious in equal measure, and I doubt that anyone can watch the scenes of her without laughing their ass off. With The Executioner, it really comes down to a simple choice. Do you refuse to indulge with a technically inept, artistically bare, frugally crafted mockery of a much better movie? Or do you dare to watch it and be blown away by the most ridiculously hypnotic, cheesy, trashy, entertaining nonsense pastiches that you're ever going to see? I mean, I know which side I'm on. Antoine John Motet played the titular role of the executioner, alias Mike, but he's done very little else in the way of actual acting, only appearing in a brief moment in 1985's Bruce Lee's Dragon's Frights Back. Christopher Mitchum played the role of Roger. He'd been in a whole host of westerns, uh, 1973's The Cauldron of Death and 1987's Faceless. Veteran actor Aldo Ray appears as the police commissioner, who'd gone from starring in major blockbusters in the early Hollywood years to appearing in American exploitation films from the early 70s onwards. He's quite well known in Video Nasty Land as well as he appeared in a few himself, namely Human Experiments and Don't Go Near the Park, but he's appeared in other films too, like 1975's Psychic Killer for example. His role in The Executioner is quite small, though. I suspect his scenes were all done in one day sort of thing. Renee Harmon, who also produced and wrote the film, starred as the peculiarly accented reporter Celia. Now, Harmon was a German filmmaker who started acting and producing after moving to Texas due to her husband's army career, and she eventually became a household name on the exploitation American circuit, specialising in low-budget independent projects. She was notably heavily involved with and starred in the video nasty Frozen Scream, as well as Lady Street Fighter and Hell Riders, both from James Bryan. Dan Bradley played one of the thugs, aptly called Dan, and he also reappeared in Hell Riders and the TV version of The Shining. His most famous appearance in film, though, is probably that of Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th Part 6, though he was changed midway through filming, meaning that he plays the indestructible killer only during the paintball scene. After this, he became a prominent stuntman and coordinator on stuff like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Critters 2, 3 and 4, Heathers, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Dumb and Dumber, From Dusk Till Dawn 2 and 3, Swordfish, Spider-Man 2, The Bourne Ultimatum, Bourne Supremacy, and he even did some second unit direction work on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. The only other actor of note was Karen Calvert-Luce, who played the small role of Diana. She'd worked on the makeup department on Frozen Scream, and she was also in 1986's Night of Terror. Director James Bryan hails from Texas, and began his film career shortly after graduating from UCLA Film School in the 60s. Not really fitting into one particular genre, though, Bryan instead has made a large filmography that consists of almost every genre. One of his first was The Dirtiest Game, a sexploitation flick with bouts of violent activity, a biker gang movie called Hell Riders, Vigilante Films with The Executioner Part 2, Kung Fu Action with Lady Street Fighter, and most infamously, The Slasher Splatter Cycle with his video nasty entry, Don't Go in the Woods. 
He even tried his hands at cannibal movies mixed with supernatural movies in his almost lost Jungle Trap, which was filmed in 1990, but only discovered and completed in 2016. As mentioned before, René Harmon took the mantle of writer and producer, but the editing was done by Jim Markovich, quite a multifaceted individual. He was the editor on pictures like 1975's Forced Entry and the video nasty Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, but he was also the director and producer of Sleepaway Camp 4, The Survivor, and was responsible for the US cut of the video nasty Zombie Holocaust, the so-called Dr. Butcher MD version. Frankly, that's it though for the crew. It was such an incredibly small production that most of the people involved aren't actually credited. The film was released in extremely limited circumstances in the US and it basically failed to get any traction despite the producer's marketing ploy to trick people into seeing it. It made some money on the grindhouse circuit for a little bit after that before being relegated to video for the most part. Strangely enough though, this film did actually make it to British shores too with a July 1983 VHS release uncut from Pyramid Video, a subdivision of CBS Fox. With a film as silly as this, surely there's no issue with the police in this example. But thinking of Don't Go in the Woods, that might possibly be false. With the director James Bryan in hot water for the aforementioned slasher film, and with Renee Harmon having such a large part of the video nasty Frozen Scream, you'd think that the police would have saw this and seized it for guilt by association. And by Jove, you'd be right. That's correct, folks. Today's episode actually covers two films that were seized. But unlike the previous film, though, Brian's and Harmon's action epic wasn't seized because of them or the film's content. Its British release title of The Executioner was simply shared with a Section 3 video nasty title, which was more commonly known as Massacre Mafia Style. By default, Brian's film would have at least been picked up on suspicion of being the same film, which is why The Executioner may have also been tinged for having a very similarly sounding title. It soon disappeared regardless in the large outing of uncertified videos, but unfortunately it hasn't arisen in the country officially ever since. And it's a damn shame too, because I'd utterly love a copy of this movie all cleaned up. I do believe, however, that our American friends are blessed enough to have a Blu-ray version, which you can obviously import if you want. But really, what are you waiting for? And that's all we've got time for, folks. Thanks to everyone who regularly comments and retweets on Twitter and gives us the likes on Facebook. I do see them all, and I'm so grateful for the support. It really means a great deal to me. If you want to chat about the films I've covered so far, or ones that I'm covering in the future, or even horror in general, I'm always available online, and I'd love to hear from you. You'll be delighted to know that I'm back again next week, as always, and we're focusing on a topic in my childhood that was readily reverberated to you constantly at school. Stranger Danger. Yes, this was a scheme designed to inform children that you shouldn't trust or talk to strangers as they may want to harm you. To pay homage to this idea, I'm covering two stalk and slash titles that aptly have the word stranger in the title of the film. 1981's Eyes of a Stranger and 1979's When a Stranger Calls. Both rather creepy takes on the slasher template and both quite nasty in their own way, but we'll get more on that next week. Enjoy the rest of your day, nasty pasty eaters, and until the next time, stay clear of Vietnam vets, won't you? Farewell! (laughs) 